Welcome to Historically Thinking, a program devoted to all kinds of historical knowledge and to the ways that we achieve it. I'm your host, Al Zambone. Our website is historicallythinking.org, where you can subscribe, find more information about our guests, links, and related readings. Our email address is mail at historicallythinking.org. We'd love to hear from you. Hello, my guest today is Joshua Specht. He's visiting assistant professor of history at Notre Dame, but more importantly for our purposes, he is author of Red Meat Republic, a hoof-to-table history of how beef changed America. Josh, thanks so much for joining us on Historically Thinking. Thanks so much for having me on. So we've covered, um, we covered part of this ground back in March, February, March with Tim Lehman talking about with his uh, sort of uh, his little history of the reinterpretation of the, the cattle drive in American history, uh, part of the How Things Worked uh, series at Johns Hopkins Press. And then, lo and behold, mm. like uh, thunder following lightning, uh, comes the Princeton University <laughs> Press catalog with Red Meat Republic in it. And as I was saying you, to you before, um, boy, Princeton did a beautiful job for this book. It's uh, covered in, well, basically shopping bag material. Uh, which used to, I, I'm old enough to remember when you would go to certain, uh, even supermarkets, and they would wrap meat for you in this kind of, you know. Um, well, oh, how they did it. Yeah. And then they uh, they printed a, a cow on it uh, with the butcher's lines, and uh, boy, it looks good. And it uh, it's part of a, it's, and it really does set up a, a really fascinating book. So what I thought of this is a sort of a coda to uh, Tim's, introduction uh tim was suggesting in the course of his conversation that we needed to reconceptualize cowboys and the cattle drive as the very farthest west part of a massive industrial system and then boom lo and behold that's exactly what you do you take us from basically the calf growing on the prairie and how the prairie actually became controlled by the cowboy all the way to the final product which is i guess usually in a can right i mean that's not really fresh well there's fresh meat in the east coast but yeah, it's kind of both. Yeah, um, but like the most industrial aspect would, of course, be the canned meat. Before we um, before we start in the West, um, how did um, how did red meat become popular? How did the idea that people needed beef became popular? Tim touched a little bit on that. I know you know a lot more about it. Um, why did people have the need for red meat? Well, I've you know I've thought about this a lot, um, and it, it's hard to answer in part because it stretches before most of these people were in the United States. Um, yeah. So the first thing is, the, the key to the story, first of all, is that it's not just they want red meat, it's that they want it fresh. Yes. Right? If you think about it, preserved meat is not so much people's first preference, which is kind of different at times for something, I don't know, like, you know, bacon or mm-hmm. pork. Um, and that creates all sorts of industrial challenges. But I think the story of why people wanted goes back to the immigration story to the United States. A lot of the people coming to the U.S. come from places where uh, meat and particularly beef was kind of like a special occasion food. Uh-huh. So you might have it on a feast day or some sort of special local occasion. And so when you move to the U.S. and you can eventually kind of get this all the time, what it really is is like a special occasion food becoming an all-the-time food. Uh-huh. And so there's just huge amounts of demand. But I think the the story for preference stretches back to beef kind of being at the top of the food hierarchy um, going back way before this period, certainly. Yeah, I, I agree with that. I mean, uh, some people have emphasized that there are various nutrition claims and fads in the 19th century uh, advocating for fresh meat. Um, that's true. 
Um, it's also true that there's a technology of refrigeration is now possible for railroad cars. This, uh, all these, yeah, all these things come together. But you know, talking to my friends in the archaeology department at Williamsburg years ago, I was always struck that uh, the Zoa archaeologists would, when they dug up a well pit that had been used as a trash pit, um, in terms of animal bones, about ninety percent would be either beef or mutton. Um, mm, fish yeah. are like three percent. Um, and here we are in a place that's literally surrounded by water and fish. Um, and yet there's so little fish, just so much beef. Um, they've, yeah. they've reproduced the food habits of England. Only, of course, the English couldn't eat, didn't have as mu- that much access to beef. They just had the, the hankering for it. Um, so Exactly. Yeah. It's just what you say. I mean, and it's, but this is immigrants. The very first immigrants had that sort of, um, they had that uh, ability to take that the very the the idea of what it meant to be English was eating beef, and then be able to do it like weekly, uh, maybe even every other day. It's quite extraordinary. Yeah, and it's good if you're in the in the meat production business if you're trying to sell it. Because I thought maybe there'd be some story that they have to get people to want this all the time, but really they're just meeting trying to meet massive demand by lowering prices. That's really interesting. Business. So they're <laughs> going at the end. There's there's the the demand is always outstripping supply, which I think is right. Yeah, until about the 1970s in the U.S. That's yeah. when you know heart disease concerns, red meat starts to go into decline a bit. People start eating you know boneless chicken breasts soon after. Yeah, exactly. Like um, but it, it is, that's an extraordinary point. This is a, a this is a, a product that's never needed to advertise. Um, it is its own advertisement. So how shall we begin? Um, the the story, as as I've heard it, um, is that uh, this really is a it, it's an interlocking beginning of of war. Um, it's it's about the end of the Civil War. It's also about the end of the Comanche Wars. Uh, mm-hmm. Could you explain that? Yeah. So one of the things I stress, I mean, there's a there's I come up with this idea or, or present this idea that I think other people have talked about as well that cattle ranching is useful in terms of American expansion and also identity because it's both a tool for seizing American Indian land and it's a justification for doing it. Right. So cattle ranching, as opposed to, say, hunting bison or opposed to something else, it seems like a kind of improvement of using Western lands in the kind of European and American conceptual world. But also cattle are on the plains actually occupying these spaces, coming into conflict with people. Mm -hmm. Um, And so it's those things coming together that end up providing an impetus for finally seizing control of this land on the part of the U.S. military in, in places like Texas in certain ongoing operations in places like Colorado, and you have things like the Ute Wars, the Red River War. It's yeah, but let's. I mean, let me press back a little bit. The, no one was mm-hmm. saying in Washington we're doing this on behalf of the cowboys or the ranchers. Um, the Comanches were a problem in for Texas settlers on and off long before there was any idea of doing massive cattle ranching and supplying, to, moving to railheads and sort of and and, and that's a really important point here. Yeah, sorry, sorry to interrupt. You're, get, you're getting at a really important point. I think of it more as like an overlap of interest. The interest in Washington is actually just avoiding conflict. Yeah, right. right. They, they actually don't want – but the thing is their assumptions about what is kind of fair behavior does kind of map more readily onto the interests of, say, the early buffalo hunt, early ranchers. And so often they're trying to play umpire – but their assumptions often overlap with the interests of these early American uh, United States settlers. And so that's how we kind of aggregate into this violent process of dispossession. 
I mean, you raised an interesting way, an important way of thinking about this. It's not so much a top-down plan to kind of seize control of this land. What the, the officials in Washington and government officials across the West want actually initially is just to avoid conflict. But all of their assumptions about what's kind of fair behavior and their worldview about how to organize these places reflects this worldview that the buffalo hunters have, the uh, white American buffalo hunters, as well as these early ranchers. And so in trying to play kind of referee, what the U.S. military ends up doing often is just siding with the people, early ranchers coming into conflict with American Indians. And so while it's not top down, there's kind of an overlapping set of interests that lead to the process I talk about. Sure. There's, there's well, as there often is in politics, not just American politics, there's a push-pull between uh, yeah. people at the center and people at the periphery um, dragging each other towards some, often a conclusion that neither of them particularly intended or wanted. Uh, which you know may uh, be useful or may not. Um, it certainly wasn't useful for the, for the Comanche. Um, the Comanche by what 1868 have lost their empire. Um, it, yeah, and really 1874 they start to really go into decline. Yeah. Um, so by that time, it means that you can really take a um, a herd of cattle um, across what had been their land, their dominion. Let's call it. Um, mm-hmm. Since certainly natives and uh, Europeans both recognize the concept of dominion, if not of territory or property. Um, so now all of a sudden it's feasible. Well, you can, let's put it this way. People, as I understand it, right after 1865, there are a lot of feral cattle in Texas. And they're starting to drive these free, these, these are free cattle. In fact, the entire system, mm-hmm. as, as Lehman explained it, rests upon free stuff. Free cows, uh, free grass, which is on federal land. Um, yeah, driving north, um, and now you're free of Comanche attack. So that's how the system begins. Is that right? Is... Yeah, I think that's exactly right. I mean, and what's so interesting, right, is that's told as a story of, and I'm sure Tim got into this individualism. People kind of building these things and making these connections kind of naturally as they seek markets, but it's all built on free stuff and the kind of aftermath of these massive military operations. Yeah, right. I mean, uh, include the Civil War itself, which is why there's so many feral cattle, uh, because they've escaped from ranges or ranches or what have you. Um, so, yeah, it all de- and it all depends on federal power, and it depends on the federally funded railroads, because without railroads, there is no red meat republic. For sure. And I mean, even Chicago as the destination, right? Chicago was made by the creation of huge contracts with the Union Army during the Civil War and all sorts of business opportunities. Sure, sure. Um, so when we talk about the uh, range, what um, I wanted to find, a, there was a, you have a great line um, in, in the conclusion. You talk about basically mm. the change of ranching. The, though the collapse of ranching was a macro level event, it grew from the micro-level processes of ranching. And then here's the, the one. A ranch was an ecosystem created in the interest of profit. Please explain that because that's a, that's, a that's a lovely little point. Oh, thank you. So the idea I'm just trying to get at is that the way you made money, particularly free stuff Tim got to, you kind of want – natural processes to take their course. You want the cattle to do their own thing. You want them to reproduce. You want them to to graze on their own. And then you can kind of appropriate that profit when you take them to market. 
But you also want to create conditions in which they'll thrive. So you don't want too many wolves that might kill calves. You might want to ensure they have some access to water. You might want to avoid big fires. Mm -hmm. But you do that up to a point because it's not cost effective to totally eradicate wolves. So you only eradicate some of them. And so you create this kind of somewhat ecosystem that's just in the limits of your profitability. And that's a really weird, uncertain calculus. Yeah. And so this is this makes it sit very uneasily, as you tell it, with the, sort of the, the developing what we would think of as modern business practices of the late 19th century, uh, in which this is all about prediction and forecasting and having a great, much greater level of certainty uh, imposed upon this chaotic ecosystem. Yeah, I mean, I think this is the this is the weird dynamic I try to trace, which is that key to making money as a cattle rancher in the 19th century was uncertainty. It was yeah. it was scattering your animals and letting nature take its course. But once they try to set up corporate cattle ranches in the 1880s, the investors want certainty and profit requires uncertainty. And this works for a while, but eventually the things explode. So we're talking here then the the transition between guys picking up feral cattle or cattle that is theirs that's branded on a very, very large open range in Texas and then driving it north um, and then eventually corporate cattle ranching. What's the, what's the difference between the two? Well, so what happens is, so the people who kind of create the outlines of the system, you know, what you were alluding to are these relatively small scale people gathering up these and kind of helping forge the connections between Texas and Chicago that make money. Mm -hmm. But once that starts to take off, a lot of investors in the eastern United States and as far away as Scotland say, hey, there's like a big business opportunity here. And so what they do is they take lots of capital and they go to a place like Texas and they see, you know, 10 herds of 1,000 cattle and they turn it into one herd of 20,000 cattle. Or in the case of the XIT ranch, over 100,000 cattle. And so they combine all these things together the ranching itself doesn't fundamentally change, but that increase in scale kind of magnifies all those tensions and problems. And and now you have investors who want it to be rationalized, and that's how. So this whole system takes place. This corporate attempt happens in the 1880s as these people start buying these smaller herds, and it kind of blows itself up by the late 1880s. It doesn't work out. People are too exuberant. There's all these tensions I talk about between rationality and uncertainty, and corporate ranching fails, really, by the end of the 1880s. It kind of limps on, but as a business model, it's not a live option. And from there forward, ranching becomes relatively small scale. So it, so there's a – Relatively. Yeah. So we go from – it's very interesting. This is not the sort of the uh, – this is not a Whig history of cattle ranching. There's no gra- – <laughs> there's no gradual – ascendancy from small to large and simplification and all the rest of that stuff. We go from small relatively to corporate and then back to smaller individual owners. Is that right? Yeah. So after the failure of corporate ranching, when these new relatively smaller scale operators take off, that's when they develop this ideology of ranching that we are more familiar with. This idea that it's kind of traditional maybe non-capitalist, it's about land values, it's about family, it's about America, and it's not a big industrial business. That's mm-hmm. where that mythology emerges. And yet, they still are just as capitalist, just as like business-oriented as anybody else in the system, but they have this ideological attachment to another vision of ranching. And by this time, of course, by the late 1880s, certainly, uh, the railroads have expanded uh, almost too, well, actually, Really, in reality, too much, as we see in Iowa yeah. and other places. They're everywhere. So mm-hmm. you no longer have to drive your your herd all the way to Nebraska. I mean, 
partly, as we discussed, the layman people are doing that for the free federal grass, um, and the grass is better as you go farther north, um, mm. it's less stressed. So you're going to fatten your uh, herd up on grass right before you get to the railroad junction. That's what you really want to do. It's all going to be free, free, yeah. <laughs> free, free, free inputs. It's a beautiful thing. Um, so what? Uh, how does that change with the the reach of the railroad out as they come closer and closer to these smaller family-owned, still very large ranches? Um, how does that how does that change the market? Uh, one thing you point out, by the way, just to uh, this is I hope this is not too uh, off the t- topic. It seems that mm-hmm. w- one of the parts is that uh, corporate ranching does reduce beef prices, cattle prices, and beef prices. So by the 18, 1890, um, American consumers are now used to f- to cheap, relatively cheap, fresh beef. Certainly much cheaper than it would be in England or or in France. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean the, the the corporate ranching boom and bust actually jumpstarts the entire system, huh. because when they start to go bankrupt and ignoring the smaller ranchers now and the, mm-hmm. what happens after there, mm-hmm. the meat packers they're desperate to sell and the meat packers buy up all those cattle for cheap and then they start to take power in the system. So even though corporate ranching doesn't work, it kind of kickstarts this industrial meat processor centered system in Chicago. Mm-hmm. Let's start talking about Chicago. Let's talk about that market. Um, and how you already explained that Chicago really grew because of the Civil War. It grows, uh, as we know from the work of, of Cronin, uh, from the direct, the, it winning the, the battle uh, over who will be the, mm-hmm. hub, the hub of the railroad system in the Midwest. St. Louis loses. Chicago wins. Um, so now Chicago is the destination for all this livestock. Um, correct. And so how do they eventually, how do the, who are the people that begin to, uh, create the system of distribution of meat, fresh and canned? Mm. So I like to think of Chicago by the late 19th century as maybe like a 19th century version of Silicon Valley. Yeah. So like if you want to start a big business, that's the place to go. That's absolutely And, right. uh, all most of these business leaders are actually people born in say the Northeast of the U S or in Europe who move to Chicago and start their businesses. So before the story, meat markets are very regional. So there were regional kind of slaughterers who distributed to retail butchers in cities around the U.S. And that was normal in Chicago. That was normal all over the place. But starting after the Civil War, Chicago had more and more cattle coming into it. And there was a trade in shipping these cattle alive to the East Coast. But these regional food processors, people like Philip Danforth Armour, Gustavo Swift of Swift & Company, They started to realize that if they could slaughter more and more animals in Chicago and try to ship their meat refrigerated now that they're refrigeration technology, they could capture more and more of the profits. So there's this abundant cattle. They can't to take over the entire supply chain. And so they start to take about 40% of the animal carcass that would have been waste that they were originally shipping east. They start making that into byproducts. They start distributing fresh beef all over. They start distributing canned beef to Europe. So they can take over the whole story. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And of course, they are, I mean, they're going to use every, eventually, they're going to use every single part of every animal. Uh, the bones can be yeah. used for things. Uh, obviously, tanning keeps on going going on. Uh, there's going to be plenty, I mean, there's, there's nothing that's going to be left behind. No, I mean, it, you know, what's funny is that Armour, so of Armour and Company, he, who was kind of the most publicly visible of the meatpackers, he was obsessed with his argument that he made his millions off what he said was waste mm. and that all future fortunes in America would be made 
by technology transforming waste into profit. So he was obsessed with the byproducts from slaughtering animals, like blood, like bones. Yeah, that's actually a rather interesting idea. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I mean, I mean, yeah, but it was it was just sand until they made it into silicon chips. Well, he assumed, right, that there would be no pollution in his perfect world because they would kind of use everything to the point where it would be like utopia because nothing would be wasted. There'd be no pollution. Huh. So he was he was really into recycling. Yeah, I guess so. Yeah. Um, you have this uh, another uh, sentence, which is, I think, uh, very interesting. The cattle markets marketing system was a set of continent spanning spatial relationships, keeping cattle moving. What do you mean by that? Well, I think one of the things that was kind of in the what would be pioneering work on Chicago uh, in Nature's Metropolis by William Cronin is, is thinking about how Chicago kind of knits together uh, a relationship between city and hinterland. Mm. And what I, I, I try to kind of build on that to think of Chicago not just as a city drawing from a kind of great hinterland, but really as the chief node in a network of cities around the U.S. So Kansas City is becoming a, a bigger city. And um, – the meatpackers have relatives or business associates. Armor has a, sets up a facility there run by an associate. And so Chicago doesn't – not all of the meat trade doesn't happen in Chicago, but it controls all of it. So mm. it controls markets in Kansas City. Omaha. It has – Omaha. It has networks of people. It starts to open operations and take over operations in Fort Worth. Mm -hmm. And they start to control stockyards. In fact, the stockyards in Fort Worth only take off once the Chicago meatpacking houses agree to put facilities there. Huh. And so I try to look at Chicago as kind of the chief node, but explore those local relationships that make this big continent-spanning thing possible. Mm. You um, also discuss, and this is uh, something that uh, is particularly fascinating to me, is the importance of standardization and also regulation. Um, how did the cattle market become standardized, first of all? Then we'll get to regulate, how it became regulated. Well, I think it became standardized. So they didn't have grades of, of meat yet. In, um, but it became standardized in terms of its practices and the way it worked. So commission fees for selling livestock on behalf of someone else, those start to get regulated and by livestock exchanges. The routes you might take to Chicago, the towns you use, that all becomes very familiar. So that communication and kind of similar practices over time I mean it's very easy to do business in Chicago or Omaha, even if you don't know anyone in Chicago or Omaha. And so that makes a national market possible. But what it also means is once everything's standardized, no individual place is particularly important. Right, so Texas is really important at the beginning of this story for cattle ranching. Mm -hmm. But once you have cattle in Wyoming and Montana and Colorado that can easily get to Chicago, well, then Texas becomes less important. And at the end of the story, even Chicago becomes less important because there's all these different places you can produce beef. So standardization kind of creates the system that's bigger than any individual. Okay. So how is the – this is where like, – uh, how in the early years, let's say pre-1900 – um, mm -hmm. Does regulation uh, affect the the meat industry? Yeah. So, I mean, the in the earliest periods, this is before meat inspection. Mm -hmm. um, regulation is mostly actually federal level regulation preventing local restrictions on selling fresh beef. So once the Chicago uh, meat packers start to take over, 
all sorts of local communities, and I tell the story in Minnesota of how a town makes it illegal to bring in fresh beef from out of state. Hmm. And they set up these butchers in, in communities set up these restrictions on Chicago meat. And what the government does is they've, the meat packers force all these lawsuits, and the government starts to conclude – the federal government says, actually, if we inspect it centrally, it should be fine anywhere. So if we can ensure it's safe in Chicago, then it's okay that you eat it in Minnesota. And so the earliest kind of interventions on that point actually help create a national market because it's easier for the state to work with a big national corporation than deal with all these local kind of restrictions. And the argument does kind of make sense. If it's fine in Chicago, it should be fine in Minnesota. It does. It also um, it reinforces a, a longtime point of, of certain economists that uh, it's always the largest actors that benefit by regulation. Um, it's not surprising that, uh, say, to put this in very modern uh, terms, that Mark Zuckerberg welcomes the idea of regulation because Facebook is the largest of those types of businesses. Uh, he would potentially benefit more from regulation by keeping people out uh, of the market uh, than uh, small uh, startups uh, in, involved in social media would. Uh, likewise, uh, regulation in that case uh, was a great benefit to the meat packers uh, and in Chicago, it was not really great for cattle farmers in Minnesota or butchers in that town. Yeah. And I just want to add one thing, which is that it, I do see it, it going kind of both ways. Yeah. So antitrust law, increasingly by the end of the story in the early 20th century, gets used to kind of prevent meat packers' most predatory pricing practices. And mm -hmm. they start to say, you're actually restraining trade. In other ways, federal meat inspection is kind of imposed on the meat packers, but that actually kind of serves their interest because their biggest concern with the public is trust in mm -hmm. their meat. Mm -hmm. um, but so, so the regulation, it both restrains the excesses of big meat packing, but it does kind of accept that big centralized meat packing based in Chicago is almost the natural quote unquote way to construct a market. So it right. embraces big business. Yeah. So because the, the idea of doing business and government sort of the philosophy is sort of the same at the time. It's both going to, it's both are, the view is increasingly one of centralization and rationality. Yeah. And I think they, they, and I think there's something to that. Like I try in the book to suggest there are problems with that. I think there's things that make sense. The, the real way it gets into trouble is not just centralization, but there becomes an underlying assumption that the key way to measure any sort of improvement in the system is lowering consumer prices. Mm. And that's where you start to see exploitation on all parts of labor, of environments, of original producers like ranchers, et cetera. Mm -hmm. So let's move on uh, quickly. I mean, I should say that you, we're kind of moving through your chapters. Um, we've been talking about chapter three, which is market. Let's talk about chapter four, which has the delightful title of Slaughterhouse. Okay. I, do, I do like how you kept them down to one word each. Um, very nice. Uh, oh, thank you. In case of um, it, Slaughterhouse, um, most of us in high school had to read at least part of or became familiar with Upton Sinclair's The Jungle, which mm. is where you actually sort of end the chapter. Um, what does The Jungle, um, for those of who don't uh, know it, it was the sort of people referred to as the Uncle Tom's Cabin of the early 20th century. It was Upton Sinclair's sort of uh, deep dive. It was a novel, but it wasn't. It was a, a documentary novel about mm -hmm. the excesses and uh, the horrors of the Chicago meatpacking industry. Um, what did the jungle not tell about the meatpacking industry? Mm, that's an interesting question. I think, okay, so, so first of all, the jungle is a look at this family's life in yeah. the kind of shadow of the slaughterhouses. And so Sinclair exposes both the kind of 
working conditions, which are quite brutal. And for him also, a side effect is the lack of sanitary conditions. Mm -hmm. um, you know, this was a revolutionary novel. I think the thing I try to capture in the, the, that chapter is that you've got two kind of ways of making sense of the slaughterhouse. One is, is an incredible triumph of business genius and human ingenuity. This idea that you can kind of break slaughtering an animal into tiny different tasks that different people can do and increase the speed with which they do it dramatically is a, is a kind of brilliant process. <laughs> On the other hand, there's Sinclair's story that this is also a process that dis is, is destructive of people and families and communities. It's brutally exploitative, wages are low, it's very dangerous. And so what my chapter tries to do is tell a story that thinks about both. Uh -huh. You know, it, it views the slaughterhouse as a, as a site of innovation, but one of the innovations is it makes it you better able to exploit workers. Uh -huh. It views it as a way for producing what ultimately is very cheap beef, but it's also a kind of industrial product very different and on different grounds than what people in the past had expected from their meat. And so I try to kind of capture the full complexity of that story. What do you mean that it was something that people in the past had expected? Uh, in their meat. Well, I guess I guess what I mean is is um, people expected some f familiarity or at least proximity with the food they eat. Now, whether that's largely imagined or not, it, the idea of eating something that was slaughtered, uh, you know, a thousand miles away from where you live, was a kind of foreign and uneasy feeling. Yeah, that's... I mean, it's the reason why advertisements for canned beef suggested you remove it from the can outside of the view of the people who are going to eat it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's a that's a brilliant, that's a lovely point. Uh, we now have the the farm to table movement. We have the locavore, eat local. Uh, th this up until well, 130 years ago was, of course, what we called daily life. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and and the actual the the difference, the the, the what we've become used to um, is just it's such an alien jump for these people to make so quickly. I when I until I read this book, I hadn't I've thought I had thought about, you know, things like going on the train or having messages delivered at the speed of light. The train and the telegraph uh, were um, huge innovations. But then I think about eating something that was put, slaughtered a thousand miles away. That's equally um psychologically a, an equal uh, psychological leap for people to make in the culture yeah and this is by the way why the jungle had such resonance you know people actually obsessed about the the sanitary mm. issues that sinclair raised rather than the labor ones and this was the weak point of these of these meat packers is people were uneasy with this idea and that's why the meat packers so quickly embrace a very comprehensive regulation namely sanitary inspection because it kind of serves their interest. They want to restore the public trust. And I would argue that the sanitary conditions became pretty good as a result of that. They're obviously still ongoing concerns, but they just make huge amounts of progress after 1906 when they create federal inspection. Yeah, well, and years later, my father uh, did work for Oscar Mayer in, I think, the 60s and 70s. Mm. Uh, and he always said that uh, he wished our kitchen could be as clean as a uh, Oscar Mayer meat, pa meat packing plant. I believe that. I mean, I think, you know, now we're tempted to imagine there's all these disgusting processes happening, but they are very obsessed with sanitation. They're so obsessed. They're, 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 they're really, I, I can only imagine that personality types are in charge of sanitation and meat packing, <laughs> but they are, they are obsessed with it. Um, but it, it, that, oh, that's, that's a side note. That says something about how the jungle uh, has infected even the imaginations of people who never have read it. Um, and the way that yeah. we think about such places. Um, 
The uh, what about you discussed? Uh, you mentioned labor exploitation in the slaughterhouses. Could you talk a little bit more about that? Sure. So you know, I think the key the key to making this whole system run. So the taking apart an animal gets divided into smaller and smaller tasks. You can that has effects like everybody can. will be more productive by picking one person on that line of 10 people working at the same pace and paying them a bit more to work faster. And then everybody else has to, to speed up. And so what you get are actually quite difficult labor conditions. There's huge amounts of immigration to Chicago mm. in the late 19th century. So there's lots of potential workers and you can kind of force people to speed things up. And so I tell the story, for instance, of a, of a, of a boy named Vincenz Rutkowski, who's about 14, who works in a slaughterhouse. Um, and he starts work. He's kind of trimming the, the, the fat from the stomachs of cattle. And he's got two other kids working alongside him. And as he gets better, he's quite good at this, the other kids are fired because they think, okay, well, you can now manage this all yourself. Hmm. And the pace starts to get so fast that the day his, his kind of last remaining coworker is fired, Vincenzo is actually struck by a side of meat and ends up maiming himself with his own trimming knife. Hmm. And he spends the rest of his life trying to get some sort of settlement from Swift and Company. And I think that is kind of indicates what's happening in the slaughterhouse in part because it's a system that can sort of use people up with few consequences, at least at the beginning of this period. And so they can kind of work people as hard as they want. And, you know, it's not super common what happened to Vincenzo, but I think it is indicative. Mm -hmm. And so the labor conditions are, are quite brutal. There are attempts in the late 19th century to unionize, but they never quite work out. Um, and part of that is because the most famous of the meatpackers, Philip Armour, hates organized labor. He's a bit like Henry Ford later. And so they really fight against this. And not until the 20th century do we have effective meatpacking unions. Mm. But by then, the baseline assumption for what life is like as a slaughterhouse worker is is pretty bad. Mm -hmm. But lots of, I mean, Henry Ford eventually failed in his fight against unions. Um, other, and he, he at least in early on was trying to block unions by being a better employer than other people. Um, why did Armour succeed in blocking unions? How did he, how did that happen? Well, Armour succeeds so for a few reasons. I mean, the first thing to say about slaughterhouse labor in the 19th century is a story you see echoed today, mm. which is that the workforce of slaughterhouses in the 19th century were mostly very recent immigrants yeah. without deep ties to the United States or their communities. And, and they, in the 19th century, they're mostly from Eastern Europe um, and, so, and it, at different moments, African-American workers from the South. Today, of course, it's often undocumented people. Mm -hmm. So these people don't have a lot of social power. Who are working in these slaughterhouses and they start to organize effectively and i talk about this in 1886 mm -hmm. around this issue of an eight-hour workday um but in a broader story of american labor and in haymarket in chicago there's violence um and there's a an, an attack on the police and this provokes a broader turn in the public against organized labor even though the connection to the violence in Haymarket in 1886 is, is, is a little bit tenuous. Um, but but the, basically, the, the public the connection, against labor. The connection of organized labor to the violence. That's, yes, yeah, that's right. what I'm trying to say. Yeah, yeah. The, the point is there's a broad kind of turn against organized labor in the late 19th century on the part of the public. And so Armour taps into that and basically says, you know, I'm giving you the cheap meat you want. We are going to have to accept this kind of difficulty and struggles for labor, and he gets away with that because the public is very suspicious of these immigrants organizing these rev potentially revolutionary unions. 
Mm-hmm. So this also ties then neatly this last point you made into your, your final chapter um, called table in which you uh, refer to as another lovely phrase, the democratization of beef. Um, just, just the other day I was talking with someone about the democratization of American medicine. Um, of course, we always think of American historians always think of the democratization of, of American <laughs> Christianity. Okay. Uh, Nate Hatch's yeah. uh, book. Um, so what's the democratization of beef? Which is something we've already touched on, but I don't think it can be repeated too often. Can you hear me? Yeah, go ahead. Okay, sorry. Um, I think what I'm trying to get at with the idea of the democratization of beef is the idea that beef becomes widely available to everyone. Right. But I think that idea that it's widely available doesn't mean that it's fully available to everyone. And this is what's a little bit confusing about the phrase. It used to be that only elites could really afford beef all the time. But once everybody can have beef and expect high-quality fresh beef frequently, that's the democratization of beef. There's new kind of distinguish yourself. There are fancier cuts of meat you eat. Mm -hmm. The elite becomes worried about the eating practices of poor Americans. They're saying they're spending too much money on fancy cuts of porterhouse steak. They should eat the more humble round steak. So once everybody can kind of have beef, it starts a whole new conversation about how you eat it and when you eat it. And so I start with this democratization of beef where everybody can have it and then explore its consequences as far as class differentiation. Yeah, and this kind of, you you end the the chapter with a beef riot, which is just fascinating. Uh, <laughs> can you describe that beef riot? I, I don't want to give too much sure. away because I want people to read this book. Um, because it'll make you, it, oh, thank you. So because it will make it'll make you rethink all the things. We were just talking with Jessica Wong about uh, rabies and uh, historical mm. contingency and the way that uh, properly applied contingency makes everything you see when you step out the door, or even in the room around you, makes you see things with new eyes. And this is going to make me uh, think differently the next time I go to Wegmans and look at the butcher <sighs> counter. Um, because pe- people rioted for beef in 1902, six. Yeah. Yeah, 1902. So, yeah, I mean, I guess what I wanted to close, so I close with a story about women in New York, and I, I won't get too much into the, the, the weeds with this. Mm-hmm. Basically, beef prices go up unexpectedly as part of an agreement between local New York sellers and essentially their businesses that are in concert with the Chicago meatpackers. And, you know, the prices start to go up, and people who expected fresh red meat all the time can no longer afford it. And the the sellers and people in the community are kind of like, well, why don't you eat some – I'll teach you how to make some fish. You know, Why don't you switch to other kinds of meat? And rather than doing that, the women who buy the beef, they essentially start trashing the stores that are raising their prices. They start looking at people who can afford the meat and are maybe picking it, up, picking it out and carrying it out and they tear it out of their hands and they throw it on the ground and they stomp on it. They start breaking windows and they essentially riot until prices go back down. And what I wanted to reflect in that is that how we relate to food isn't a simple question of calories and cost. Right? The, the, the dropping price of beef made people expect beef all the time, but it didn't mean they could just easily replace it. It becomes central to who we are. Our food is central to who we are. And so availability of those things is not just a question of price or calories. Yeah, what, what's, this is not a bread riot. This is not like the uh, Confederate bread riots no. in Richmond. Um, in which uh, soldiers almost shoot women whose families are hungry. Um, this is a consumer riot. Yeah. Uh, people who are involved in it know that there are cheaper options. They even they say that. Um, 
uh, what, what you quote one woman saying, what fools we are to buy meat when fish is cheaper. Fish is better than meat. It is more nourishing. If you don't know how to make fancy dishes out of fish, I will teach you that. So what? That's that's that. Yeah. This is a consumer riot. People want their beef. It's also at a, at a kosher butcher, which is interesting. Uh, and they they say he they um, they criticize him for what? For refusing to close his shop and sell, quote, selling meat to Italians, which which <laughs> yeah. I. Uh, right, but here are people who maybe have just emigrated from the Schlettel in Eastern Europe or from a village in Genoa, in Liguria, or Sicily, and they're protesting their inability to get beef, of all things, which they probably had eaten once or twice a year in the past. It's extraordinary. Yeah, I think the reason why, and this is what's why I think beef is so important for thinking about America, is for those people, their ability to have that beef was like the key marker of their success and progress in America. Yeah, it, it's, it's a mark of their Americanness. Yeah. And so once they can't afford it, well, then the kind of like social contract of life in America starts to fray, right? They might even think that life is hard there. It's not easy being a recent immigrant, but they have this thing they can point to for progress. And you saw this also in the labor movement where they talk about a worker's ability to afford meat as a sign of American manhood. Mm -hmm. And so this is, becomes important to who we are as Americans is our ability to consume things that are meaningful to us, particularly beef. Mm -hmm. Yes, you're right. As desirable foods become more widely available, we call it Speck's Law, they become central <laughs> to increasingly varied culinary contexts. Yeah. So we find Eastern European Jews and Sicilian Italians. Uh, beef is not part of that, but it's their diet at all. But uh, we could say the same thing for, say, Hokkien or Sichuan Chinese. But mm -hmm. then as it, be it becomes desirable as a consumer good, it becomes central to their extraordinarily varied culinary context. Yeah, and I, I tried to think about what it is about food that is unusual as a commodity, and I think that's it. It's that flexibility. It's mm -hmm. also the tendency that when you cook it, you create, you kind of embed it in your own set of meanings, like you make it into your food you expected at home, you know, yeah. back in Sicily. And that also makes you think less about its industrial origins, right? Because you have your own story and history of that object because you've made it yourself. And that's what's so weird about food as a product. Yeah. Um, you end the book with uh, Teddy Roosevelt. Um, why? Well, I thought, I thought Teddy Roosevelt was a, a kind of works well because – I mean, I'd be going out on a limb here a bit, but he had worked as a rancher in the 1880s. Sure. And he's also – so I know he's a rancher. He becomes known as a trust buster. And what I also know is that ranchers hated the Chicago meatpackers. They hated the power of these big <laughs> businesses over their lives. And I think he may be – imbibed a bit of that yeah, right i think so he he becomes suspicious of the power of business over people's daily lives and he and he has that kind of individualistic streak that he, he views as very western america and he becomes the perfect regulator of the meatpacking system because he's both suspicious of big meatpacking but he also hates socialism and he hates unions and so he doesn't say we need to break up this huge industrial system. He says we need to tame it. Mm -hmm. And so he starts to investigate the meatpackers for their predatory pricing practices. He starts to push for regulation of sanitary issues. And so Teddy Roosevelt kind of reigns in slightly the meatpacking industry but accepts its structure. And that sets the stage for I think everything that follows in American meat production after that. Yeah, it's, it's very – I mean Roosevelt contains multitudes um, and there's uh, – yeah. pe people forget um, – 
you just described a sort of uh, uh, the the narrow middle way that he threaded through various uh, extremes, which now seems kind of strange to us. Um, the fact that he, yeah. you know, that fact that he could hate the predatory capitalism and socialism at, at the same time, uh, when we now see that it's sort of a binary choice, it's, it's very odd. Uh, yeah, I mean, I'm impressed with him the more I think about this and this particular topic. Yeah. You uh, conclude that this is also a reminder, and you're discussing basically everything that's come before in the book. Uh, this is one of your last sentences. It's also a reminder that this method of producing our food is a question of politics and political economy rather than technology and demographics. Uh, could you explain that? I think that's a, a really interesting place to stop. Thanks. Um, sure. So if you knew nothing about the history of industrial meat, I think what you could you could say and be like 60%, maybe 70% correct is that it's a story of railroads and a story of refrigerators. Sure. What I noticed as I studied, and I think that's true, railroads made it possible to move cattle, refrigeration made it fresh. As I studied the story though, that also is a story of human struggle. It's a struggle of ranchers to make profits in, in stockyards against the buyers for the meatpacking houses. It's a story of uh, the Kiowa thinking about their way of life and how it's disrupted by these cattle moving into the plains. It's a story of slaughterhouse workers. And so there's a human struggle. And not just that, I see people who talk about the history of beef and they tell that story about That's the entirety of the story. And when you tell that as the entirety of the story, you miss all those different moments when corporate ranching becomes more powerful and Chicago isn't as powerful as it was. You miss those moments when butchers tried to break the power packers and maybe we would have had a decentralized food production system, whatever that system's cost and benefits. And so all I want to get at is we need to remember that there are human struggles and there are political decisions that created the world we have, and that means it's also possible for human struggles and political conditions to change it if we're troubled by certain aspects of it. So what you're describing is you're describing a great um, amphitheater of the past in which all sorts of individuals are making complex personal decisions that change the direction of which, in this case, yeah. red meat uh, gets to the table of Americans and becomes to them a symbol of their Americanness. I think so. Um, so you, re you refer to political economy in that phrase, and that's not a um, term that is now much used. Um, it's I noticed that it's increasing in use. So what do you mean by political economy? I wanted to convey the idea that markets constructed by both laws and human struggle. So the way the market works, the American economy takes shape isn't just a kind of reflection of the stage of technological development of society or some sort of abstract forces. They're a result of decisions. And so by stressing that it's a question of in the broadest sense, from laws to people rioting over meat, tries to suggest that our economy is pieced together and maybe suggest that there's some contingency to it. Hmm. Now, um, your supervisor uh, for, for this dissertation is Walter Johnson, and he's one of the... Um, mm -hmm sort of as it were leaders and the history of capitalism movement that's been around since the turn of the century. Um, I have some misgivings about it. Um, mm -hmm. I, I'm not an economic historian. Um, I'm not, uh, I don't know enough math, uh, but I'm <sighs> sympathetic when I read economic historians when they criticize the history of capitalism and I take their criticism seriously. Uh, on, the mm -hmm. other hand, on the other hand, I think there, there might be something very exciting 
about there being a new history of political economy. Um, and um, that seems to me um, perhaps more fruitful than some of the directions that histories of capitalism have gone. Um, do you hope, do you have aspirations that this is the first, is this the first book of yours on political economy and will you come back to that well again? I think so. I mean, I think the thing that I really got interested in in writing this book is of space, geography, and economies yes. and markets. Yeah. And I think that theme I'll focus on. Now, just what I'm very interested in, in a way, are kind of qualitative questions about institutions that you can't really are very hard to quantify. Mm -hmm. And so I think that kind of work that's qualitative can hopefully exist and work alongside the work of economic historians that's much more quantitative. So I, I try to hedge my bets a bit <laughs> on anything too quantitative to a more fruitful discussion, but maybe I'm just a bit conflict averse, but I'm sticking with this focus. <laughs> my guest today has been Joshua Specht. He's author of Red Meat Republic, a hoof to table history of how beef changed America. Joshua, thank you so much for being part of Historically Thinking. Thanks so much for having me on. It was a great conversation. For more historical thinking, go to our Facebook page, where you can comment on today's program and suggest ideas for programs to come. Please subscribe to us on Apple iTunes. And if you like what you've heard, please, please leave a review so that others can find us. Our program's editor is John Runat. I'm your host, Al Zambone. Talk to you next week. 